This episode of ContraZune contains spoilers for Mad Men, including the series finale. If you have not yet seen it, I suggest you don't listen to this episode quite yet. If you have seen it, pour yourself an old-fashioned and listen to this episode. Thank you. Where we go back and forth about film. Normally, we discuss movies. We've gone over the first 10 Oscar winners. We've gone over the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And we've also had some interviews with some screenwriters. Now, much like how we shifted things when we covered um, a play, we also like to talk about TV now and again. And one case in particular is a TV show that was so cinematic it's like you watched a 50-hour movie and so on today's episode we're going to focus on that 50-odd hour movie with Mad Men. Mad Men has sadly come to a close but it closed with such finesse and grace that it does not pardon or excuse everything that has come before it. It has been a thrilling ride but it has also been a very realistic one that has grounded us in solid alcoholic cement in such a way that many other TV shows would cloud with sensationalism. Of course, Mad Men was hyper-stylized, but at the same time, it felt hyper-real. And it felt like a world we could truly be ingested within. We have a lot of TV shows now that separate us from reality. But it feels good to be thrown back to the 60s, not just with its style, but with its formula, as we got a little bit of the old and a little bit of the new with the way TV shows are now, with Matthew Weiner's Mad Men, a terrific show that has so many things worth commending. Since it has come to a close, we have had enough time to sit and reflect on the finale, which some would consider ambiguous, some it's clear as day what it represents. I think, uh, Dakota, you and I would agree that it has a very clear-cut understanding of what it is trying to say as an ending of the show. But why don't we look further and say, say we look into how this finale and the couple of episodes that have preceded it wrap up everything the show represents and not just the what some people consider an ambiguous ending, but I think you and I agree it's it's pretty it's pretty obvious what it's representing. Yeah, there there's certainly a lot to to gain from it. You know, I think depending on how you want to look at it, if you want to consider yourself naive or not, the ending could either be something that's a happy thing or it could be not necessarily a depressing thing, but a sober realization that you know, maybe the world isn't as warm and fuzzy as you thought it was. And, you know, love is just a four-letter word created to sell women's nylons. Yes. And it's one thing to start the series off with 
somebody like Don Draper, who is a bit of an anti-hero, saying this to get with a woman that's not his own. But it's another thing for that same character to realize maybe society is so far gone that we are stuck in this position as well. And we are the people telling the lies. But we still have to believe it ourselves because we have told these lies for so long that they have become true of ourselves as well. That's kind of what Mad Men's all about. It's this image which has swallowed those who tell the who tell this story. And for those who try and avoid it, I guess like the female characters in the film, or in the TV show rather, it's not a film, um, in the TV show, how they strive to overcome these stereotypes that they have been sucked into. And uh, with that in mind, I guess, in relation to how it ended, what does Mad Men mean to you? Mad Men means to me, as far as the ending goes, where, you know, to give a a brief recap, um, you know, Don is at a California retreat where he was sort of dragged there by... uh, a woman he cares about, um, Anna's niece, Stephanie, um, the real Drapers. Um, and he is going through a real midlife crisis. And at the end of it, he comes to an enlightened moment and comes up with possibly one of the greatest ads of all time. The, I want to share a Coke with the world ad, you know, you look at that and it's hard not to see, Dawn selling out the hippie counterculture movement for the sake of selling a Coke. You know, you can look at the ad and you could feel nostalgic and all these sort of things. But if you look at what's behind it, this is a brilliantly calculated marketing scheme to make Coke seem cool and hip with the slowly dying out counterculture movement as we're going into the 70s when hippies aren't as much of a thing as the 60s were absolutely and to me the finale represents a lot because the entire series you have don draper try to escape his past as dick and become a leader of sorts become this this figure that demands respect and attention but he could go about anything that he wants and when mccann erickson finally engulfs all of these companies, um, his own included, and they have to work for McCann Erickson. He's no longer in charge. He leaves and he goes on this retreat. What does he bring back after his his big revelation while he's meditating? A commercial that says, I want to share with you the notion that he's finally no longer having to be in charge. And you know what? He's okay with it. He's an everyday man now and he can accept it. And he doesn't want to tell or to give He merely wants to share. And perhaps that's all he needed all along because he lived a life where he was the central figure to make himself important this whole time. Perhaps he just needed to be a normal person who just shared and not necessarily gave the world to people. Now, do you think that the way the show ended that Don was able to happily work with McCann Erickson because he spent basically the entire last season uh, trying to figure out a way to escape from being under their thumb and, you know, to the point where he basically runs away for the last half of the season. Do you think he goes back and brings them this Coke ad and, you know, dutifully plays the soldier for McCann Erickson? 
Funny you should say soldier because it looks like he doesn't really escape that lifestyle at all. But um, uh, this is where it gets a bit ambiguous. Not necessarily when a lot of people were saying, did he actually create the advertisement? I, I think it's clear as day that he did. And even then, Matthew Weiner and John Hamm both have said, yes, yes, Don Draper did. So I guess that speculation's out the window. However, the events that, that came before this that we don't see. That, I guess, is up to speculation. And if I was to come up with an interpretation, I think, yeah, I think he went back happily because he's no longer having to prove himself. He's just finding this understanding of himself as a basic human being who doesn't have to be an image himself. You know, one of the last things we see is him hugging a group member while they're in the circle talking about how they feel. And he identified with the fact that this person felt alone and completely overlooked by society. And Don Draper acknowledged that that's how he felt, despite the fact that he's run a company, that he's led to marriages, that he's been this sex symbol that so many women have sought after and I guess have been heartbroken by as well. Um, He's been this figure that everybody comes into the room and says, Don, how's it going? And that they didn't make him a better person. It was acknowledging that perhaps trying to be a central figure of a person made him inhuman and he just wanted to be normal, just like any other person. So this acknowledgement that he was at one with not just himself, but with the people around him. And he wasn't, he wasn't the guy that everybody was going after for once. He was just a person. He had no name there. He was a central figure. Perhaps that was the mentality he needed to go back to McCann Erickson and work as a teammate and not as a leader. So to me, I think he went back and he went back optimistically. Well, that's good to know. What about the other characters, how they wrapped it up? Do you think that the show was able to successfully not necessarily wrap up their stories and be like, oh, okay, we now know everything is a nice bow, but in a way that it was sort of a a good send-off, specifically people like Peggy, um, who, you know, when she sort of came back with a uh, I-don't-give-a-shit moment um, after spending some time with Roger. Peggy. Okay, Peggy is an interesting character. I guess we'll start off with her because... I've said this for years. She has had one of the greatest character developments on any TV series I've ever seen. You see Peggy Olsen played exceptionally well by Elizabeth Moss coming into this facility, shy, meek, unable to speak, timid, like floundering about wondering what to do. Should I play it sexy? Awkwardly. So should I just stay out of everything? And you see her end the show being like the top gun, highly respected. This woman is going to get her massive career and we all see it coming. But we didn't because in the end, she ends up frantically confessing her love to Stan. And this happens in such a way that we all kind of expected it as the show went on, but we didn't because they never really did much about it. And At first, it was kind of hitting a wall of an ending. But the more I think about it, the more it's kind of funny and true to real life that you have this big fight to go to the top. But then something like, I guess, 
a subtle love that was there all along kind of just comes out of nowhere and that detects your future for the short time. We don't really know what will ever happen to Peggy, but for now she's content with where she is instead of fighting to be at the top like she has this entire time. Yeah, for for Peggy, I, I look at it where like her ending with Stan the whole time, the, la- the last season they were sort of hinting at it. I was really, really hoping that nothing would come up between them because I was quite enjoying their platonic friendship that, you know, every we're so conditioned by TV that if you see a male and a female character playfully talking, that a relationship or sex has to be coming out of it. And every episode that it didn't happen was another episode that was like, wow, you know, maybe two people can just be friends that there doesn't have to be a relationship. And as the last episode was happening, where they finally got together and and they made their love for each other. I was like, oh, I really don't want this to happen. They ruined a great thing. Why can't they just remain friends? But then as soon as that moment happened, when Stan drops the phone and literally runs across the office to tell Peggy that he loves her, I was like, you know what? This works. I'm happy with it. I'm happy for them. And it completely changed my mind about, their platonic friendship in fact i think it actually makes it stronger that they are such good friends to be in a relationship because if you look at the other relationships in the show they're not friends megan and don were not friends jane and roger not friends yeah exactly and you out of all the relationships you can see this one has the most solid foundation and the only reason why i think it works is because the finale is full of a bunch of realizations Don realizing his capabilities and his self-worth. You know, Betty realizing her mortality. Um, Which, can we talk about how sad that was? I I choked up a little bit during that uh, note to Sally moment. How did you feel? Oh, God, that was... Well, I wrote a list for Alive in Limbo, actually, of my favorite moments, and that was high up there because I think that wasn't just one of the best moments of the entire series but i think i think kind of like the the peggy ending where it just changed the character and the entire course of their path entirely which the reason why peggy's ending is perfect is because it's this really awkward realization that she loves stan that i thought was perfect and as awkward as her character is um but to go back to betty's ending i think that it was an ending that really changed her character and her worth this entire time which we will go into pete's ending as well but i think you've got a similar thing to say about his but with betty the whole time you kind of see her as just like this person who who drags on people's coattails she just clings on for the ride she kind of stays at home she's a basic mom but then something like this happens and you understand that she, out of all the main characters, is the main consumer of all of these lies that people that Don and Pete tell. Hence why she was married to Don and hence why she ended up marrying a politician, which is another form of a liar outside of advertising. In fact, it's advertising in its own right. So you see this woman who was dependable and or is like she depended on others rather and. She kind of just went along for the ride, and then this happens, and you know what she does? She just kind of goes about living life that's the way she that she wants to, but after she's dead, she basically wants the world to know that she was beautiful, and that's kind of the only thing that she's hung on to this entire time, and to me, that's absolutely devastating. I think it was the only thing that 
she can truly claim as being her own. While, you know, looks are, are based on, you know, what your parents and your family look like, that was something that was truly Betty's. Her her personality, everything about her was completely controlled, whether it was uh, her parents when she was a child, Dawn when she first got married, or um, I'm forgetting what her second husband's name was. Yeah, I am as well, unfortunately. Um but the whole Henry, Henry, yes, Henry. Uh, her her whole image and personality was completely crafted by other people, and the only thing that she can claim as her own was her beauty. And well, you know, that's probably a pretty shallow thing. So be it. And also, the thing I liked about the note was probably the first time. Uh, that she treated Sally like an actual person because the whole series was basically Sally and Betty fighting with each other and Sally wanting to be grown up and Betty not wanting her to be. And finally, it takes death for Betty to respect Sally and for Sally to realize that her mother was just doing the best that she could in the situation that she was put in. And it was it's sort of a very... It's a very melancholy moment when you realize... That both of these people were just, you know, putting up guards and as soon as they put their guards down, they can understand each other for the first time in their lives. Yeah, they both had a fear that either of them were becoming Dawn, this man that left because of what what crimes and sins they committed, you know, and uh, Sally was fearing that Betty was the was the worst parent all along or that she was influenced by Dawn. And Betty was scared that Sally was going to grow up like Dawn, where in the end, they were both their own person. And while, yes, they were influenced because it's impossible to not be influenced by a family member, um, they forgot who they were as people because they were influenced by the advertising man and his, and his power and effect. And it's interesting to see how Sally went from kind of being the child to being easily one of the most important characters and seeing her ending basically being combined with Betty's where you see Betty smoking away, accepting her fate. And you see Sally washing dishes and helping cook for the family, like her brothers who she's barely much older than she's already accepting the role of this motherly figure when she's nearly a teenager, not even, you know, like she's too young to, have to worry about taking care of her brothers, but that's the role she's got to accept. And out of all of the endings, it's all of the endings I would say are bittersweet in some sense, but this is one that is more bitter, but a little bit sweet because you know that the Drapers can depend on Sally, who unfortunately has to pick up this big responsibility. But at the same time, it, it feels like the family is finally together as one and not separated by the separation of Dawn. Yeah, for sure. Um, I guess one other main character that we can talk about is Pete. Uh, he's someone that, you know, you love to hate him throughout the whole show. You, you just love that he's such a arrogant, pompous jerk. And every time he's on the screen, you just want to punch him and, you know, shake him and be like, this is not how a normal human being behaves. What's wrong with you? Stop being such a spoiled brat. And then slowly but surely... You know, episode by episode, as the show went on, you realized you didn't really hate him. You hated who he was at the beginning, but he actually is growing up, 
changing, adapting. Yeah, he still did some pretty despicable things, the way he was cheating on his wife and, and things like that. But by the end of it, he was extremely sympathetic to the point where, you know, you genuinely cared for him and was really happy for him. I was really happy with the way he ended. I was rooting for him to get that job with Learjet. Yeah, he was also a character that had a great development. And after the entire series finished, I was still on a madman high. And I went to my girlfriend and said, hey, can we watch these, or episode one? I would love to show you what the show is all about. And I forgot how young, trim, clean cut he looked. And just, I guess as sharp as his image, just how disgusting of a person he is and how manipulative and just rigid, you know. And I forgot how big the transition was to this balding, slightly bigger man who who admits, hey, I'm not this young whippersnapper that I, I once was. I'm accepting my debts. I see who I once was. I want to change things. And he, for a good duration of the show, he was almost like a Squidward character, somebody that we would love to hate and have bad things happen to just to make up for all the bad things that he did. But it was almost pugnacious how we love to see him getting beat up, almost literally at times. In fact, actually literally at times. Several times. (laughs) Several times, yeah. A lot of people. The king ordered it. Anyways, uh, so... (laughs) It was it was it was to a point where we were almost worse than he was with how shallow we were acting towards Pete, where when he tries to reconcile with Trudy at the very end, he was somebody who had their ending wrap up a little bit sooner than a lot of other people's in the episode before the finale. And it was that realization that, hang on, maybe this guy's not so bad anymore. Maybe we're just laughing at his misfortunes because of because of who he once was. But that doesn't make him the same anymore. And he's gone through quite a few adventures himself. I mean, just the amount of things he's gone through, it definitely would change somebody for either the better or the worse. And he went down the right path, just still in snotty fashion, because that's just who he is. He's a snotty person. But a great resounding ending to somebody that could have crashed and burned because they could have just been the punchline of every joke on the show. Yeah, I I thought it was a really satisfying way to close out his character. Uh, Getting back with Trudy, I thought was was a little cliche, but you know, it worked out and, and it's not unreasonable that, you know, families get back together. I thought that was more believable than at the beginning than uh stan and peggy getting together because you know they have a shared history they have a kid they weren't actually divorced they were just separated and neither of them were clearly very happy so getting the family back together going away from all the vices and temptations and evils of new york that caused him to be this utter jerk was probably the best thing that could happen to him and you know he still gets to be the rich guy (laughs) Yep, absolutely. And it's also worth noting that if they did stay separated, that the show would almost have an opinion on how things should work. But it's nice that all of these outcomes are are varying and different in some sense that Dawn never got back with Betty. And, you know, all of these other relationships never really got back together. But Pete and Trudy, like the one that starts off the show with their wedding and he's excited to get married. Oh, gee. 
gee willikers, I can't wait to get married. Oh boy, by the way, I'm going to commit adultery before my wedding. Um, you know, it's nice to see that the thing that starts off the show, like this big wedding for one of the younger members of the firm, ends off with them reconciling and putting it back together and putting the advertising past in the past where he goes for this new future. And yeah, it's it's nice to see because it's a character that we expected a reconciliation from the least, but it all makes sense. It all makes perfect sense. And as you said, it could have been very hokey, but it wasn't, I don't think. Absolutely. Uh, now, I guess we should probably move on and talk about some different things. Um, speaking of Pete, uh, I want to talk about some of our favorite characters. And Pete is one of my favorite characters. I It took me a while to sort of uh come to that realization and when it did it hit me really hard you know he's he worked so great as the comedic relief you know from the things saying things like um the king ordered us to do it that scene is comedy gold to uh not great bob uh when bob (laughs) benson was still on the show scenes like that um pete the last three or so seasons Every time he was on screen, it was guaranteed going to be the funniest, best moments of the episodes. So it was hard not to love him as a character. Um, I have a few others, but do you want to mention some of your favorite characters first? Out of all of the characters that we haven't really touched upon, and this could be my favorite character on the show, period, possibly Roger Sterling, played comedically and seriously by John Slattery. And... I love this character because he is the most invincible feeling. He's the one that feels the most fictitious. Like, here's this guy. He starts at the top this entire time. He does all of these things. He does hallucinogenic drugs. He has heart attacks and he fights through them. He goes through all of these women. He has all of these weird experiences happen to him. He blows blows his top sometimes, but sometimes he's just the comedic gold of the episode. There are just so many facets to Roger Sterling that in a show that full of men that could be considered anchors because everyone's kind of cemented, he's almost like a wacky anchor that reminds us, hey, some wacky, insane, batshit, crazy people exist in real life. And here's one of them. It's Roger Sterling. And I thought at the same time, as crazy of a jester as he was, he was also very serious about advertising. He was just a kooky person, and I don't know, I thought he was similar in a way that P. Campbell was lovable because of just how bizarre they were. He was the same. Yeah, I, Roger Sterling is another favorite character of mine. I think that his arcs probably weren't as big or as epic as some of the other characters on the show, and usually didn't stand out in episodes as much comparatively when you you talk about someone like um, Peggy or Pete or someone like that who has more showy showy stuff. But every scene that Roger was in, you couldn't help but enjoy being around his character that like you, you could watch, you could watch a security camera trained on Roger Sterling and that would be endlessly satisfying just watching him go about his everyday life. And, and I think that's the mark of a great character is that you, you want more of them and it doesn't even matter what they're doing. I would watch, you know, Roger getting ready 
for work in the morning. I would watch Roger looking phone numbers up in a phone book. Not that he would do that. His secretary would. But things like that, where the, even the most mundane things were made interesting, mainly because of John Slattery's excellent performance, but is a testament to the character as well. Yeah, and it's it's a good thing you mentioned the story arcs, because were they a showy? No, they weren't. And out of all of the endings in the finale you know he kind of just ends up with megan's mom mayor i think her name was and they just are in paris and out of all of the endings his is the most uncertain they're probably going to split up knowing roger's history they probably are but for now he's content and it's a good thing you mentioned the arcs again because i feel like if he did have a massive dramatic arc it would almost suffocate the show if too many characters had all of these things happening at once, you know, it would be overly dramatic. His eccentricities were just enough for the show. And did he have stuff happen to him? Yes. Did he have stuff that was devastating and interesting? Of course he did. But he's a great character because he's not a great archetype of a character where they must have this hero's journey or they, they need to have all of this stuff happen, overcoming these burdens. Did he have obstacles? Of course he did. But he's a great character because he's just an interesting person that exists and you want them in your life. And with that, you could bounce off so many things with other characters. I mean, when him and Don were, having, were at wit's end with each other, he was the perfect foil because of just who his character was. He was the greatest advertiser, arguably, on the show just because he was a walking commercial himself. And you had so many characters fighting to be that or fighting against it that he was just the ultimate foil for everybody else. And he was a part of their archetypes, not necessarily creating his own. Yeah, uh, I think my other favorite character was Sally Draper just because of everything that she was. You know, you the only times you really hated her you know, you look back as when we were young and it's more from a child's perspective. It's not because she was doing things that were intentionally malicious, understanding what the consequences were. And as she grew up, she was probably the most fully realized child character I've ever seen on TV or even in movies as well. You never see such a complete portrait of what it's like to be a child growing up. And, you know, maybe it's because they hit casting Goldmine with Kieran and Shipka. Um, yes. Maybe it's because of Weiner's writing. Maybe it's a combination of all of it. But I don't think you'll ever see a more perfect portrayal of a child on TV ever again than Sally Draper. That's a safe assumption to make because, well, when Boyhood was a big hit last year, there was this big speculation on, oh, if Ethan Coltrane didn't end up being like a reasonable actor, this whole movie project could have gone to complete waste. And, People notice that with movies, but they often forget it with TV shows because, you know, once a TV show is still filming, you go away for a while and then it comes back, you revisit it. And again, like the big startling realization of how young Pete was when I restarted watching it, you don't really pick up on these things too easily. But it's great that Kieran and Shivka is being noticed by pretty much everyone because I feel like you could only write so much for a character that's weak. You know, Weiner could only do so much if an actress or actor is not doing a good job, you know. But with 
Kiernan Schiffkamp's portrayal on Sally, she went from being, again, just like one of the kids to really standing out. And I think that was less to do with like this conscious decision that Weiner had this entire time to make her like, I, I'm sure he wanted her to be a big character, but I think the level she was was simply because Kiernan Schiffkamp commanded it. And she became, for a lot of people, like the best character on the show when before she was barely even there. She was, again, just like one of the kids. I, I think an easy way to contrast is you have to look no further than her brother, Bobby Draper, who is portrayed by no less than three different actors. And the fact that probably most casual fans did not even notice that. That's that's how far you can go and like, oh yeah, Bobby Draper, yeah, he, he was the kid. He was in most of the episodes. But did he ever have a plot point? I don't think... Bobby Draper ever had a single story arc in an episode other than being there because it was a family event there there was they could have written that character out and no one would have noticed so I think that's it's so easy to see the difference between portrayals of children just in one family and how a successful and unsuccessful portrayal can be yeah the whole young boy component of the show was taken up by Glenn, who's not just a completely different person, but Glenn is linked to Sally, who again takes the crown of being like this child figure in TV shows and series, and I hope this is the case where a career is made out of this, because I know Kieran Shipka is pretty big with, with fashion and modeling now, I believe, but I hope this continues her cinematic and televised career, because this this is not the ending for uh, for this actress because, again, I think Sally Sally was a big, big portion of the show. And usually, when they try to push children to the focal point, it kind of feels it kind of feels forced and phoned in. Like, oh, oh, great! Now he's got to talk to the child on the phone. But when he's talking to Sally on the phone in the finale, I mean, you feel it. Like, you want to hear more. You want to know where this is going when he's sending her off onto the bus. You want to hear this dialogue like this is this is real. And it's not just Betty that treated her as like a normal human being, like the show treated her as a normal human being. And that's why we did as well. She wasn't just some child there for sympathy. She was a character and a damn good one. Let's figure it out. I think we should sort of wrap it up by talking about maybe what you think the show's legacy will be. Where where does this show rank on, you know, the gold standard of TV show scale for you? For me, it's exceptionally high. For me, it's... When you have shows like Breaking Bad and Game of Thrones, which are good shows on their own right, and I would consider Breaking Bad a top-tier show as well... When you have shows like that, which funnel intensity and anxiety and nerves and anguish over and over and over again, you sometimes just need to sit down and just say, hey, this is what it's like to live. And you had a little bit of that with The Sopranos, a little bit of that with, the, with Six Feet Under. Even in The Wire, you didn't just have crime happening all the time. You had 
families and gangs sitting down and just talking and just being people. Mad Men was more of a talkie that had a little bit of intensity here and there that caught you off guard, just like it would in real life. It was a great capsule of the past in such a it's such a fanatic kind of way that Weiner even had like the ice cubes represent the way that they were in the 60s. Like just everything was pure perfectionism. It was a great capsule. It was a great testament to how everything was. But most importantly, with its cast being so incredible and using this script and bringing it to life, it is one of the most intricate scripts I can think of. And that's why an episode like this is possible because of just how fully in-depth and complicated this screenwriting is i mean we could have an episode in 20 years and still think of stuff that we didn't think of before and just today even you came to this realization that alcoholism came about as a big plot point for the ending of of don's uh don's story arc and while it was obvious that he was an alcoholic, it's still something we didn't even focus on because we had so many other things to focus on. It's already considered an instant classic, and I think it's only going to get stronger as the years go on. Yeah, I think one of the great things about it is the fact that it's already a period piece means it won't age, it won't get dated because, you know, you, you can look at, if we wanted to, say, shows from the actual you know, late 60s, early 70s, how poorly they've aged, just the way they were shot, they were created, the acting, things like this. I think this has a real classical style acting mixed with some amazing cinematography that I don't think this is going to date the show. You look at something like The Wire, which I still believe is the single gold standard for television. And if... I, I look forward to the day that something is better than it, but I doubt something ever will be better than The Wire. If you go back and watch that show now, especially the first season, you can tell how much it's really aged. That show was from the early 2000s, and even though it's only been 15 years, less than that actually, because it was, you know, I think 2003 or something like that when it came out, uh, maybe a little bit later, uh, it it doesn't... It doesn't feel like it's a modern show. It already starting to feel like it's a bit of a classic show. Um, but with with Mad Men, they don't have that opportunity to happen because they've already aged it. And the fact that they aged it so perfectly, you, you know, if you want to, we we can spend an entire episode talking about set dressing and costumes and and how well that was achieved on the show. And the fact that you know ninety, probably ninety five percent of the things that were either shown, worn, used on the show, none of us will ever know, but Matthew Weiner will know. That is a testament to a quality made show. Absolutely. And it's good that it's been aged appropriately so it'll feel timeless. But at the same time, its themes are relevant and they always will be. I think a big statement is how this is from the early 60s to the early 70s. But this is still a, a lot of themes that we can bring to our society now the manipulation through commercialism and media. The, the want to feel attractive and the fears that you're not doing something right, what it means to truly be in a relationship or a marriage or be a figure within those relationships, all of that. And it's still very relevant now. And the way that we 
we learn the inside and the outside of advertising through these men who you could consider con men or just honest men trying to make a living for themselves, depending on how you look at it. And we see this entire story with all of them and how they branch out. They battle addiction. They battle with their loved ones. They battle with themselves. And you see it all end with a recognizable, with a recognizable commercial that made us all smile and go, ha, ah, that's a nice ending. Oh, the credits are up. Oh, it's finished. It ended with a commercial we all recognize because in the end, that's all this was. A big, long story to end with a commercial and explain the, the behind the story of how this commercial possibly came to be. And it's, it's an eye-opener because it's not just the commercials that get this kind of attention and this kind of love put behind them. Sometimes, I guess if you're Don Draper with McCann Erickson, not necessarily every commercial you see, but... It's interesting to see the amount of self-discovery that goes behind anything. And it's almost inspirational because this was just for a short commercial that tried to sell Coke. The amount of battles this one man had with himself for years and years and years, basically a decade plus, all of this turmoil he put himself through because of his self-hatred that's, de that's deeply embedded. And in the end, his happiness was our happiness. And because of how how thematically relevant it is to our time, its time, the time of the future, I can predict most likely will be like that as well. It won't age because we need to cling on to something. We clung on to the Coke advert and so did John. Absolutely. I think sort of a, a cool thing, another cool thing about the show is they use actual advertisements to base their stories around. One point in particular, the Coke ad at the very end, um, which obviously is a real ad. They use the actual original ad, but McCann Erickson, the agency that Don works for, is a real agency. You look back, McCann Erickson made that Coke ad. So that's that's how much that story was played out into real life. And, and I, I think things like that are just absolutely crazy. You know, it doesn't help. It doesn't change the way the show ended, but just knowing that those little details are pretty cool. And then you look back and like the the Kodak carousel ad that was a real one that was a real ad campaign uh the stuff with Jaguar was all real the the stuff with um Topaz and all those sort of things those were all real campaigns which I thought was was very clever to do so they mixed you know some some made up stuff with some great uh use of classic advertising yeah and it wasn't just the advertising world that was spot on it was all the political stuff and just the world events that surrounded all of these characters. I mean, the mist that and the smog that killed people. You could see Don looking out of his window, and it's perfectly in relation to its timeline within the story. You have, you know, assassinations, the moon landing, um, the fear of Charlie Manson and his family coming to kill people. It's all perfectly in relation, and it's not just thrown in just for the sake of argument. It's actually perfectly integrated into everything. You have Cooper's obsession with space and and space travel. As soon as somebody lands on the moon, he's content and he passes away. And it wasn't just shoved in because the whole time he's talked about his love for the other worlds outside of his own. And just the fact that the whole series is based on McCann Erickson, it's not as if they remembered the Coke ad and said, oh yeah, maybe we should make that the ending. It's almost as if, and it most likely is, that was the goal this entire time. What was behind this commercial? How can I make a story behind it? And bam, Mad Men existed. 
just everything feels so calculated and so perfectly placed. It, it's it's a very satisfying show, that's for sure. As as frustrating as some of the moments are, but you know, every every frustrating moment is there for a reason. Every character that you hate is there for a reason. There's there's no there are no I find that there are no weak points in the show. And and for that it's it's definitely my number two all time show. Um but please I also want to know what you guys think. If you have a different opinion on either how the show ended or your overall thoughts on it, like it, don't like it, please let us know. Uh, we want to hear your feedback. Um, now, uh, where can uh, all of our listeners find you, Andreas? You can find me on Twitter at Andreas Babs. And you can find me on Twitter at DGAPA. And you can also find the podcast at ContraZoomPod. Uh, where, you know, we'll gather around, we'll all pour ourselves in an old-fashioned and talk about it. This week's music is brought to you by Cattle. They're a Toronto-area dance rock band, and there will be links to buy their music in our show notes, along with uh, several of the other articles that we mentioned throughout the show. So thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed our discussion on Mad Men. <laughs>